why such a big deal out of this? Why are you so mad? These are the words that I said to my mom when I was 19. I, I, I had just come back from my first semester at college. Any of you remember that? Your, your first taste of freedom? Your first taste of independence, you, you, you leave a child, you come back a fully formed adult who just knows the things of the world now, knows, knows how to function, understands finance, understands responsibility. And I came back so eager to show my parents that I was the real deal now and their work was done. And, and at this particular Christmas break, um, I had scheduled, a, made a plan um, to have dinner uh, with a girl that I had dated for a few years in high school. Uh, we weren't dating anymore. I, again, I had evolved. I had changed now, so I had moved beyond the, the small things of high school. Uh, but, but still, she wanted to get together, and I said that I would. Uh, and my plan was that I was going to go to my old high school and play basketball with some of my buddies, and then after basketball, I would go meet her for dinner, and then I would come home. And I went to play basketball, but the basketball was really fun, and it was really competitive. And this was before the, the time of cell phones or any of that. And, and so I just blew the dinner off. I just didn't go and stayed and played basketball. And I thought, you know, I'm old enough to make these kind of decisions now. Well, the girl sat at the restaurant for a while and then went home. Apparently, she was sad. She told her mom, who apparently was mad, who called my mom, who was most definitely mad. So when I got home from playing basketball, I, I walk into my house, and my mom is waiting for me in the kitchen by the back door. Now, now this is unique because um, my mom, uh, if, if, you, if you know my story at all, she was crippled. Uh, so it took some effort, and it took her walker to be able to get to the back door. So she was never standing by the door waiting for me. And there was fire in her eyes that I could see. I probably, I probably can count on one hand the number of times I saw my mom throughout her life get angry. Or, or mad, but this was definitely like three of them all wrapped up into one. <clears throat> and she stood there and she said, where have you been? And I said, I was playing basketball with my friends. And she said, you left that girl sitting at a restaurant. She said, what are you thinking? That better have been a good basketball game. That was her exact line. And I thought, how cute of my mom to still, you know, try to parent me at such an advanced age. And, and so I told her, I tried to explain to her. I said, mom, things are different now. I'm an adult. I can make my own decisions. I have a car. I can drive to the places I need to go. And to which my mom responded, oh, the car. You mean the car we pay for? The car that's titled in our name. The car that's insurance is covered by us. The car that we give you gas money for every week. The car that you don't get anymore on Christmas break until you get your head out of a place it shouldn't be and start making better decisions. To which I responded in, in just frustration. Mom, I don't understand what is such a big deal. Why are you making a big deal out of this? Why are you so mad? And you can probably imagine her response, especially if you are a parent. She looked at me and said, because you're better than that. Because we have raised you to be better than that. Because four months away at college do not mean that you don't have to play by the rules. They don't mean that you're not part of a family. It doesn't mean that we do not have an agreement that we have put into place about how we are going to live and behave. You see, I had bought into my own hype. It didn't take me very long. I had, had, had bought into the illusion that I was in control, that the rules didn't apply to me, that I could do whatever I wanted. And it was my mom who came along to remind me 
that that wasn't actually the case, that I wasn't in control, that there were rules, that there were responsibilities, and that I was a part of a family who lived by a certain standard. Now, we have been working our way through this really strange and disturbing Old Testament book um, called Ezekiel over the last few weeks. Ezekiel is a priest who is living in exile in Babylon, and where, where God often would tell his, his prophets and, and his spokespeople to just say things to people, if you remember, God tells Ezekiel to act these things out. It's, it's, it's street theater. It's performance art. And every chapter that we've looked at has had some sort of a vision or some sort of a demonstration that Ezekiel has had to carry out, all in, in, in an effort to, to communicate to God's people that he's frustrated, that he's mad, that something is not right. And Ezekiel chapter 5 carries on this same odd tradition with a really, really weird a set of actions for Ezekiel to carry out. So we'll look at them here on the screen. It says, Son of man, take a sharp sword and use it as a razor to shave your head and beard. Use a scale to weigh the hair into three equal parts. Place a third of it at the center of your map of Jerusalem. After acting out the siege, burn it there. Scatter another third across your map and chop it with a sword. Scatter the last third to the wind, for I will scatter my people with the sword. Keep just a little bit of the hair and tie it up in your robe. Then take some of these hairs out of your robe and throw them into the fire, burning them up. A fire will then spread from this remnant and destroy all of Israel. So, so let, let me paint this picture for you. God says to Ezekiel, here's what I want you to do. Take a sword, not a razor, a sword, a sharp sword, and shave your head and shave your beard. And then take a scale and measure out the hair you measure out the hair into equal parts. Some of it you put on this map and you're going to burn it. Some of it you're going to chop up with a sword. Some of it you're going to throw up into the air. And some of it you're going to put inside of your robe, which you will later take out and throw into the fire and burn that as well. God tells Ezekiel to do these things, to, to demonstrate what God is planning to do to the people of Israel. It's very uncomfortable. He's saying, this is what will happen to you. Now, it's significant to understand that shaving someone's head and beard is not a fashion statement, at least not in the ancient Near East. Now, someone might make this decision just because they want to, but there were two reasons back then that that would happen. The first was if you were a prisoner of war. If you were captured during battle, one of the first things that would happen almost every time is that if you, if you were a male soldier, your head would be shaved and your beard would be shaved off. It was very, very shameful. Um, it, it took power away from you. It was humiliating. You might remember, uh, any of you have studied even our, our recent history, um, when the United States would capture people and interrogate people um, during some of our conflicts in the Middle East. It was often reported that they would shave their heads and, and, and beards. That, that's always been a sign of shame in that part of the world. Well, the other reason that this would happen uh, was if you were mourning, if you lost someone, if you were suffering and in grief, if someone died, it, it was customary that uh, a man might shave his head or his beard or even part of their head or part of their beard to reflect the fact that they're suffering. So God asks Ezekiel to do this, yes, in part to demonstrate that he's angry, but let's not miss what else this would have demonstrated. It would have demonstrated that there was conflict between God and his people, but it also demonstrates that God is not 
just purely angry in a vengeful sense. He's, he's mourning. He's sad. He is suffering because a relationship has been lost. And, and this begs the question, doesn't it? The question I asked my mom, God, why are you making such a big deal about this? Why are you so mad? And he actually gives an answer to that a couple verses later in the passage. He says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. This is an illustration of what will happen to Jerusalem. He's saying all the things that Ezekiel just did with the sword and the the shave, all are an illustration of what will happen. And here's why. I placed her, that's Jerusalem, at the center of the nations, but she has rebelled against my regulations and decrees and has been even more wicked than the surrounding nations. She has refused to obey the regulations and decrees that I gave her to follow. This is why God is mad. He's mad at his people because they are his people. He says that. He says, I placed you right in the center of all of the nations. I have entered into a covenant agreement with you, a family agreement, and I have kept my part but you have walked away. And it's interesting that he says that you are even worse than the surrounding nations that don't follow me at all. The people who don't know any better, okay, that's one thing. But you know, right? God had given Israel prophets. He had given them the temple. He had given them his presence. He had given them the law. He had given them blessings and prominence and influence and all of those things. And God looks at all of that and says, I gave this to you. And it's not that you're clueless. It's not that you don't know what you should do. It's also not just that you messed up one time. Over time, you have continually just been running away. It's not that you're ignorant. You've just stopped paying attention. And that is why God is mad because this is more than just a clueless person acting poorly. These are people who God loves, people who have entered into a promise, an agreement with God, people who have invited God in and he has given them prominence and influence and he has placed them where he's placed them and then they've decided to walk away. Like 19-year-old Ben, they've bought into their own hype. They've thought that they had control over things that they didn't. They thought they could do it on their own. And so they walked away from the relationship with God thinking that they didn't need it to have the power and the blessing and the protection that God provided. And then they lost all of it. When they walked away from the relationship, they lost everything the relationship also provided. And and so God judges them. That's what this whole chapter is actually about. And he goes into specific detail. We won't read it up on the screen, but you can read in Ezekiel chapter 5, and it's uncomfortable. He goes into detail of the things that are going to happen. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be war. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. People are going to lose their lives in the battle. Things won't be the same. It's uncomfortable, and it's hard. But it's God's judgment against people who have walked away from him when an agreement has been made. So, here's the question, I think. What does a priest who shaves his head and his beard with a sword in a foreign land 2,500 years ago, what does that have to do with us? What does any of that have to do with us living here and now? 
I think it's worth remembering that God's love for us is his priority. God is motivated by relationship with us. God wants to be in relationship with you and in relationship with me so that we can partner together to do his work in the world, to bring glory to him. That is his highest priority. But God will not force that on any of us. God will not force a relationship on you. God won't force a relationship on me. God will not come in uninvited. It's important to remember that he desperately, desperately wants that relationship, but he won't force it on you. However, when you invite him in, he'll show up. When you invite God in to be God, you shouldn't be surprised when he starts doing God things. When you invite God in to be in control of your life, you shouldn't be surprised that control is the thing that he asks for. I mean, imagine that you moved God into your house, right? The house that you have. And you invite God to come in and to stay with you. And of course, when you bring him into the house, the first room you bring him into is, you know, your, your formal living room. Because that's the nice one. Right? It's all clean and everything's put where it's supposed to be. Maybe a little fireplace over in the corner. And it looks nice. And so you bring God in, you give him a nice seat on the nice couch and, and maybe bring him a cup of coffee. I, I assume he'd like that. And, and, and you start having a conversation, you and God, just talking about things. But you notice after a few minutes that he's getting a little antsy. He's kind of looking around, kind of, kind of craning his neck a little bit to look over there. And you go, God, what's going on? And he goes, well, this room is nice, but, but what, what's over there? What's, what's in the kitchen? Well, that's a problem because you haven't done your dishes in like a month, right? They're piled up in the sink. There are bugs around them. You don't have any good food in the, in the fridge. Like your cereal boxes are open if you looked in the pantry, which you know is bad, but you don't want to take the time to always close them all up right. You know, the, the, the floor is kind of messed up in your kitchen, um, you've got, you, you've got um, some, some stuff on the walls that maybe, maybe should be replaced, but you just make comfortable with it. There's some cracks in the ceiling. It's just not a good room. And so you say to God, hey, you know what? This is, a, this is the place you should be. You should stay right here. You stay in this room because this room is great. And so God stays there for a while. He's living with you. And one day you come in and, and he's not in the living room anymore. And you go into the kitchen and once you know it, he's torn up the floor. And he's in there, and he's tearing things off the walls. He's emptied all the junk out of your refrigerator. And, and he's intense about it. There's, there's some fury to it. There's, some, there's some, some just almost feels like anger to what he's doing. And what do you say immediately? You go, whoa, 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 whoa. What are you doing? Why, why are you tearing all this stuff up? Hey, I like this stuff. And God goes, no, this, this stuff isn't Okay. This, this isn't the right kind of thing. You don't actually need to have this stuff in here. This isn't working for me. To which you would say, hold on, this is my house. This is my place. I get to decide what goes here and what doesn't. To which God would respond back to you, yeah, but you invited me. You said I could come in. And this stuff here needs to change. See, oftentimes, when that process starts to happen in our lives, what do we do? Oh, God, you're so mean. <laughs> you're so angry. You're so judgmental. 
And we look at these things in the Bible where, 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 where God is, is judging and we only see it as this angry thing. But what if, what if God's judgment in our lives was just the process of him rearranging the furniture and tearing things out of the kitchen? What if that is what judgment is? What if God's judgment is him coming into our lives after we have invited him and saying to us, you know what? That isn't serving you well. Saying like my mom said to me, hey, you're better than this. And you were made for more than this. And we had an agreement because you invited me in. And these things here, they need to change. Here's the thing that's true about God. He is relentless when it comes to these kind of things. If you invite him in, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's hard, he will not stop doing his work in you. He will not stop tearing the things out of your life that you didn't need to have there to begin with. And you only need to look to the cross to know that this is true. Because God himself came here in the person of Jesus and he hung and he died so that he could be in relationship with you and with me. And when it got hard and when it got uncomfortable, he didn't stop. He pressed in. He kept going because his love for us is relentless. As one person said, God would loved you so much that he would rather die than live without you. The cross is a great indicator to us that God loves us so much that he's not willing to leave us where we are, even if that means that he's going to judge us, even if that means he's going to tear things out of our life, he won't stop. And what the cross says is that he eventually took all of that judgment on himself so that he could pay that price for you and for me. And, and, and maybe you feel that. Maybe you feel a little bit like, you know what? Yeah, I've, I've got some of this judgment I feel like going on in my life. Like maybe you hear me talking this illustration of the house and you go, that, that feels like me. I feel like God's ripping, ripping my kitchen up, tearing some things out, and it's hard and it's frustrating. But here's what we have to remember. Like the cross, everything God does, even if it's painful and even if it's hard, is motivated by his love for us and is motivated by his desire to be in relationship with us. And so if you find yourself in the middle of a rebuild, if you find yourself in the middle of what you might consider to be judgment, God looking at you and saying, you know what? This is not the way it needs to be. There is good news for you. And that good news found in the cross is that God's only desire for judgment is love. God doesn't judge you because he's angry. God judges you because he loves you. He doesn't tear your kitchen apart because he wants to leave it a mess. He tears it apart because he wants to rebuild it. You remember the last thing Jesus said when he was hanging on the cross? Hanging there? It is finished. Think about that. It is finished. And then he died. And then three days later, he resurrected and that resurrection, resurrection signaled the start of new life. It signaled the start of a new story. I put on a suit coat this morning to come here and tell you this. God always finishes what he starts. 
He always finishes what he starts. And if he is tearing things apart in your life, if he is doing his work in you, and it feels hard and uncomfortable right now, if you can hold on, if you can hold on, you will see on the other side of that that he is faithful to finish what he starts. Because you know what comes on the other side of judgment? Resurrection. What comes on the other side of God tearing your kitchen apart is that if you can hang on long enough, one day you're going to walk back into that kitchen and you're going to see there's a new floor to put down. And you're going to go, oh, this is a little better. You see there's better food in the fridge. The cabinets are back up. And you're going to see that, that the God that we view as a judge is also Jesus the builder who is building things back into our lives because he always finishes the work that he starts. And he finishes that work in you and he finishes that work in me. That is what he does. And you know, sometimes I think it's really easy to trust him for some things, you know. It's easy to trust for the big things later. Like, yeah, he saved me. He forgave me. Someday at the end, you know, I'm going to be with him in the sweet by and by. Are you willing to trust him in judgment? Are you willing to trust him when he's doing his work in you? To trust and to believe that he's actually doing something? And that he's going to finish the thing that he started? You know, in this story of Ezekiel, there's a little verse of hope that's buried in there. Uh, we'll put this up on the screen. Um, uh, actually, let's go. Uh, we're going to go a couple more there, Nick. Um, one more. Um, yes, right here. This is a little further down in Ezekiel. God says this. Then my anger, then shall my anger spend itself, and I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself. And they shall know that I am the Lord. I just want you to see that phrase. God talks about all the things that are going to happen to Israel, and he says, and then my anger will subside. And he says, and they will know that I am Lord. That's not God saying, then they'll know. It's him saying, we can be in relationship again. Yes, judgment is coming because I'm trying to get their attention because they invited me in and because I love them, and I won't stop because I never stop. But on the other side of that, the great promise, the hope that we have is that God is saying, just like he did to the people in Ezekiel, I will finish the thing I start. And on the other side of this is a relationship. On the other side of this is me giving you everything that you actually need to live this life here and to live in relationship with me. So maybe you hear this whole thing and, and you think to yourself, yeah, that I, 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 I sense it. I feel like this is happening to me, and it's hard. And maybe you find yourself, and I know I find myself here sometimes, fighting it, you know, fighting against it. You hear this illustration, this idea of a room that God can go in, and right away you think to yourself where he can't go, right? I'll, I'll give you that, God, but I'm not giving you him I'm not giving you her. I'm not giving you that. I'm not giving you my ex. I'm not giving you my failure. I'm not giving you my addiction. I'm not giving you my job. I'm not giving you my money. I'm not giving you my sex life. God, I'll give you all these things, but you can't go in that room. 
Maybe you're fighting that. Maybe you are like the people of Israel, running away, avoiding, keeping God on the outside even though you've invited him in. Can I say this to you as your pastor and as somebody who in every way is in the trenches with you right now? Stop. 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 Stop trying to control it because you didn't have control to begin with. Stop trying to fight against the work that God is doing in your life and trust his judgment. Trust that God is the only one who can judge you without destroying you. He's the only one that can tear your house apart and build back something better. Stop fighting it and start trusting it. And when you trust it, you'll surrender it. That's how you know when you've got trust, is that you'll step back and say, God, I'm going to let you do your work. I'm going to pay attention to what you're doing. And yes, it's hard, but I am going to fight to believe that on the other side of this, on the other side of this judgment, on the other side of this complication, on the other side of this rebuilding project you're doing on me, is resurrection. Now here's the truth. If you run, you'll never stop. If you try to keep control, you'll fight that battle for the rest of your life. And what you lose in that is you lose God's ability to do in your life what only he can do. So may you, my brothers and sisters in Jesus, may you surrender. May you trust the God whose judgment is so deeply rooted in his love that he will restore and rebuild and finish anything that he starts. And you know that phrase, it is finished, is maybe a good one for us. Now I'm going to pray for us here in a second. But maybe for you today, you should take it is finished and change it to I am finished. And maybe this is your moment in your day and your time to just say, I'm finished fighting. I'm finished running. I'm finished trying to struggle to stay in control. I'm finished keeping God out of the place that he keeps trying to get to over and over again. I'm finished stopping him when he's pulling things down off the wall. I'm finished because I know that he'll finish everything that he started in me. God, we love you, and we don't pretend that the, the, the judgment parts are, are easy or fun, but God, we hold on to what you say in your word, that you only judge the people that you love. So God, may we believe that your judgment is founded in your great love for us and that you finish everything you start in us. So God, we declare as your people gathered together today that we are finished. We're finished fighting it, running from it, controlling it. And we just want to trust you and surrender. We ask these things in your name. Amen.